You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series called Manly Encounters with Jesus, presented by Carl Nebia, elder and member of New Hope Chapel's teaching team. We're going to be talking about uh, Thomas today, but when you think about in the, the scripture, there's a number of biblical figures that we see significant parts of their lives, and we begin to learn uh, through various stages of their lives and activities, what they were like, what God was doing in them. And uh, in the end, you see this picture of Abraham's life. You see a picture of David's life. You see a picture of Moses' life uh, and what God did. I mean, Moses, we, we know from when he was born. Uh, so uh, these are people that we see a tremendous amount of their lives. Others, on the other hand we see only brief periods of their lives. And yet there's things that stand out about these characters that uh, basically define their lives. And as we look at a few of those people, we'll even see that, in fact, their lives begin to define the words that we understand. For instance, Jezebel. You can call somebody a Jezebel. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it talks about this person who was a Jezebel, and that has a certain connotation of a domineering woman, maybe uh, the sexual immorality and so on that was involved there. But that, that, those characteristics go with that name. If we, for instance, think of the term patience, what do you connect that to? Job. Okay, people talk of the patience of Job. It's like it's Job is synonymous with the concept of patience. Uh, if you want to uh, use the term traitor, but you want to do it poetically, what do you call somebody? A Judas. Okay? So these are people who, in fact, by actions in their lives, actually uh, have, have determined or defined the very words Uh, that we use. Now, Thomas, what is Thomas known for? Doubting. Okay, he's doubting Thomas. It's like it's linked together. He doesn't have one name. He has two names, doubting Thomas. His name was actually Thomas. He was referred to as Didymus, which means twin. But in the end, he became known clearly as doubting Thomas. So we're going to be reading today uh, as... um, from John chapter 20, and I have a uh, a special request here of Kay to do the reading today, and we're going to ask you to read from John chapter 20, uh, verses 24 to 29, and let me see if I can move this, no, pushing the right button, how come this never works for me, there we go. Okay, so we're going to be talking for John 20, uh, 24 to 29. And let's put it a little bit in perspective. Uh, After Jesus was crucified on uh, Easter Sunday, when he rose from the dead, uh, a number of people went to see him. Uh, There was uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary the mother of James. Uh, There was also Joanna and Salome. Uh, After that, Jesus appears to two people on the road to Emmaus. Uh, and in the end has, has a meal with them and reveals himself to them. Uh, then he meets with the 11 uh, disciples, or the, 
Actually, the ten disciples, Judas was gone, and Thomas was not there, so he meets with the disciples. And then we get to this part uh, in John chapter 20. So, Kay, if you could uh, read this, and I'll forward this. There we go. You can, whichever one you want to read off of is fine. So this is the story of Thomas, the one we certainly uh, know him uh, most, uh, most by. And I want you to think in terms of uh, this situation, uh, Thomas uh, taking a very definite stand here that he would, in fact, not believe unless he could put his fingers in the hole in Jesus' side. Now, uh, once again, Thomas has come to be known as the doubter. He has come through history to be understood that way. And just trying to be consistent here, I am going to show a little bit of artwork uh, for everybody. Uh, This is a picture by Rembrandt, one of the famous Dutch painters. And uh, it's a little bit dark in here. I don't know if uh, there's any way we can kind of alter that. But in this picture, uh, Thomas is actually the older man on the right there with the with the uh, uh, Dave Bohannon sort of beard, and uh, uh, excuse me, just I couldn't couldn't resist that. Uh, Jesus is in the center, kind of glowing, uh, even though he's maybe not yet been glorified. He's sort of glowing, and in this case, Thomas looks a little bit, just a little bit surprised, uh, but certainly uh, you know not threatening. He seems kind of friendly. So the next picture is by Rubens, and in this case, it's interesting. Jesus looks a little bit more human, not glowing so much, but if you look at the three people on the right, actually the second one in line, uh, if you were to kind of put him in the form of the last painting, probably looks exactly like that same man, even though it was painted by a different person. It's not really clear in this case whether that's Thomas uh, or the younger man on the, on the right there is Thomas. But chances are it is that older man, because traditionally that's how Thomas uh, was portrayed. But Jesus is there in, in red robes this time, uh, showing his hands. You don't, even, you don't see the piercing in his side in this case. But interestingly enough, in, in, uh, consistent with a lot of European art, we've got folks on the right and left kind of looking on. Now, they clearly were not there when Jesus appeared to Thomas. And in fact, these are probably the very people who paid to have the painting painted. So they kind of paint themselves into the scene. Uh, there are, in fact, cases where the, the painter themselves or 
the people who paid for the painting end up having their own faces painted into the actual scene as opposed to this case where they're in their Renaissance garb and, and so on. But this is, this is by Rubens. Okay, the last one here is by a good Italiano by the name of uh, Caravaggio. And in this case, the scene starts looking a whole lot different. Uh, Jesus, for one, in a little bit brighter view, he actually looks like he just got out of the shower. His hair is kind of in ringlets, and he's got a, a sheet, you know, probably just you know, pulled out of the shower room, and it's kind of wrapped over him. Uh, but in this case, Thomas starts to have a very gaunt, almost, I would have said, if I hadn't known what this picture was about, I might have thought this was Judas. He starts looking, you know, really thin, kind of wrinkled, maybe a little bit uh, on the evil side. He's got a tear in his shirt. And Jesus is actually taking his hand and sticking it in the hole. And once again, in a, in a bright, clear picture, you can actually see the fingers going in and lifting up the flesh. Okay, it's very, very striking. Uh, but certainly it's a different, different view than what we've seen before. But nonetheless, it gets across this idea of Thomas as the doubter. And, you know, the amazing thing is there's not other artwork about Thomas's life. There's no paintings of Thomas uh, coming to become a disciple. There's no paintings of Thomas uh, when, uh, as Justin talked about last week with Lazarus, there's no paintings of Lazarus saying, well, uh, why don't we go to die with him? Maybe meaning Lazarus, maybe meaning Jesus, because Jesus was going into a very tough place. Uh, there's no paintings of that. It's all of this case, and that's why we become uh, more and more convinced that Thomas is a doubter. For instance, there's also no paintings of John, uh, I think it's chapter 14, which is the beginning of, or this, actually it's the second chapter, of the Last Supper where Jesus begins to speak, and Jesus says to them that he is, first of all, he says, uh, trust in uh, God, trust also in me. So he's telling them not to doubt. He's already kind of, you know, putting the finger on Thomas. Tells him not to doubt. Trust in me. I go to prepare a place for you. For my father's house has these many rooms, and you know the way there. Okay, you can see all the disciples sitting around. Jesus said, you know the way there. And slowly up goes this hand. And all the other disciples are looking to the side and say, why does he always have to ask a question? You know, they actually, before he became known as Doubting Thomas, he was known as Springbutt Thomas, <laughs> which was a Marine Corps term we used to use for the person who always asked the question, even when you're trying to get out of there and get the chow or whatever you're doing, they always ask the question. You want to just shut up, shut up. And you know, did, they, did any or the rest of them know where Jesus was going? I don't think so, but Jesus says, you know where I'm going? And only Thomas raises his hand and says, you know, how are we, we don't know where you're going. And Jesus, you know, what's, what is the way? How, how are we to know the way? And Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, the life. If it hadn't been for Thomas, that very famous saying would never have come out. But you don't have any paintings of Thomas asking about the way, the truth, and the life. It's all about him. It's all about him doubting. So that's, that's uh, this, once again, 
beautiful artwork uh, portraying a number of things about him. But let's, let's think about it a little bit. Here's Thomas uh, with the disciples. They, of course, are excited. They're really pumped up. They've walked for Je- with Jesus for several years. They've seen him raise people from the dead. They've seen him uh, you know, take uh, loaves and fish and expand them to feed many. They've seen him walk on water. And now, of all the things they've seen, he's done the greatest of all. He's risen from the dead. He's told them about the prophecies. He's explained the prophecies to them. And they are excited. And Thomas walks in, having not been there when they, talked, uh, when they met with Jesus, and they say, Thomas, the greatest thing has happened. Jesus has risen from the dead. And he looks at him and says, I'm sorry, unless I get to see him and put my finger in that hole, you know, as grizzled as he looks and putting his finger up inside that flesh, he's not going to believe. Now, you must admit, most of us have had situations in our lives where we have really gotten excited about something spiritual. For some of us, it was the day we came to be a believer, and we rushed home to our family or friends, and they weren't all that thrilled about it, right? They weren't all that excited. They, they knew what Christianity was. They raised you to be, you know, you know whatever kind of... I won't dare say the word Presbyterian because that would have, you know, gets me locked into certain things. But, you know, there's all kinds of Christian groups. We grow up in Christian families, Christian culture, certainly. And they couldn't believe it when I came home and said, Jesus is real. You know, he saved me. What do you mean he saved you? Carl, you know, you're going to college. Everything's great. You know, how can he, what do you mean he saved you? Uh, but that happens a lot. How about it? if you've ever witnessed something you felt was a miracle and you went and told somebody who wasn't there, what happens? They kind of roll their eyes. Uh, you sure it wasn't a coincidence? You know, the doc, did the doctor you know, do anything for them? There's all kinds of you know, cases like that where people don't believe. And the basis of it essentially is that they didn't have the same experience you have. They were not there when it happened. And it's impossible for them to understand it the same way you did having been there. And it's actually not right of us to expect them to believe it. Because we said it? Does that make it, does that make it something that they should believe? Because I, mean, because I said it, you know? Right? But in fact, it's interesting in the Christian church, we actually have to be very careful about this issue of like uh, group motivation. Like I gave that example earlier. I can put things in a certain way that make it impossible for you to leave. And here, you have to believe there was a lot of pressure. In fact, it says that Thomas stayed with them for a week and the doors were locked. Okay, this almost sounds like an intervention. You got all these disciples, you got Thomas in there for a week with the doors locked. And after, you know, first it was probably lots of them all saying stuff, sharing what they remembered about seeing Jesus and what he explained about the prophets and so on. 
And finally, they say, okay, it's not working. Okay, let's have three of us sleep for a while. Three of us keep up the heat on Thomas. We'll, we'll turn up the, the, you know, the candle a little bit brighter, and we're going to make him sweat. And for a week, we're going to press him. I mean, there's whole cult groups created off of this kind of arrangement. You get somebody a locked space. You only give them certain kinds of foods. Before a week's over, you know, they'll believe anything. So, you know, the pressure had to have been really heavy here. And in the end, Thomas still says, I won't believe it. He gets all of that pressure. Now, do we pressure people today? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, certainly when I was a new believer, the pressure was kind of subtle. Uh, oftentimes it was how we looked. I mean, I, for instance, I was, taught, I was taught to teach from the Bible like this. And if you wanted to emphasize something, you did a little bit of this. Justin, on the other hand, preaches like this. Okay? I'd never seen that before, but I was taught this other way. In fact, a lot of the people, uh, certainly the young men that I was with when I was a fairly young believer, certainly not when I was in the Marine Corps, we had our heads shaved and all that kind of stuff, but when we came back into this area in the church, uh, a lot of the men were kind of cutting their hair in sort of a bowl cut, and they were growing beards. So, of course, I gave it a shot until Loris told me I looked evil. And I needed to cut the thing off, which I, I, I broke out of the mold, and I cut it off. But we came up with new words, like sharing. And I know when I went home, my mother would roll her eyes when I would use the word sharing, but it became such an embedded part of my life. Sharing didn't mean, here's your toy, there's my toy. It was, this is how you talk to people about God. You share. Okay? So we had, you know, we had all these things kind of built in, and we begin to... You know, people begin to get used to this culture, and they do what the culture says. You know, even some of the ways we praise and worship is driven by those who are around us, right? So, uh, in this let's face in today's world, uh, another great example I think is Facebook. Now, we love to put things up on Facebook with very strong political positions, sometimes very strong religious positions. And, of course, we expect all 283 of our friends to agree with us. And the funny thing is, I very seldom see people respond with an opposite argument. Now, sometimes I have to admit, with Dave, Dave's, Dave actually puts out well-thought-out issues, and, <laughs> and uh, sometimes he's playing the devil's advocate, just trying to get the discussion out there. And some people debate with him, and he certainly is going to school in kind of a debating-oriented group, and and that sort of thing. But generally, when people put out these very strong political messages or very strong religious messages, you don't see much in the way of, uh, I don't really agree with that. That's a hard thing to do, is to suddenly post an argument saying you don't agree with this position of faith or, or whatever it happens to be. And one of the latest tricks is um, the dare posting. Now, this is almost entirely a Christian concept. And this is the one that says, if you really believe in Jesus, you will repost this, and we'll see how many of you do. So not only is the posting a challenge 
forcing you to agree with whatever thing they're putting out, but part of the dare, part of the posting, is to force you into badgering everybody else also. Because when you share it, then everybody else has got to get into the same game. So just, you know, if you send me one of those, I never respond to them. So, uh, I, you know, I, that's just who I am. But anyway, but that's a, a dare posting, all part of a Christian psyche of group maneuvering. And here Thomas stands up and says, I just don't, I can't do it. I can't accept it just because you said it. And ultimately, do we want people to accept it because we said it? Everybody has to come to decisions and to an interaction with Jesus Christ by themselves. They essentially have to make those decisions on their own. They have to grasp the truth on their own. They don't get it by osmosis, by standing close to you or to me. They get it by wrestling with it themselves and coming to that decision point. So that's what we want. I don't want my grandchildren to grow up thinking I'm a great guy. I want them thinking that God is a great God and that he changed my life. And that they would each, one by one, come to that conclusion. Not just because I've said it, because they've grasped it. So in every case, doubting and questioning are, in fact, though not an acceptable end, are part of the process of coming to believe. And each individual has to go through those things themselves. We have to ask those questions that we have. Without fear, we have to ask them. We have to make those decisions. There's no other way to do it. And regardless of what they might have thought they could accomplish with Thomas, during that week, whatever pressure they put on him, I'm glad he held out. Okay, now let's look at this a little bit deeper. We're going to go on to Luke uh, 24. And one, or, yeah, Luke 24. And one of the interesting things about this, about this issue of doubting and questioning, uh, is the fact that in Jude, it actually tells us, the book of Jude's only one chapter, so verse 22 Uh, says that we are to be merciful to those who doubt. That's an interesting idea, because didn't James say that those who doubt are like, you know, waves tossed to and fro, and that they should not think that anything that they ask is actually going to be answered? We're supposed to have mercy on them. I wonder why. I wonder why. So let's, let's turn over to Luke 24. Uh, if you have your Bibles. And I'm just going to point out a number of things. This is, again, the story of the resurrection, uh, the story of Jesus appearing to the disciples. And uh, first of all, in chapter 24, in the first verse, it says, the women went uh, to the tomb very early in the morning. Now, why did the women go to the tomb? It says they took spices with them. I'm sorry? They were, they were preparing the body, so they thought there was going to be a dead person there. They didn't go there expecting to find the risen Jesus. Regardless of what he had said before, they went expecting to put spices on the body. 
That's who they were. Now, later it says, uh, down in verse 11, it says, uh, let's say in verse 9, it says, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they, the apostles, did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So did the apostles believe when the women came and told them what they saw? No. In John chapter 20, verse 8, it says that John came, or excuse me, that Peter came uh, to the tomb, and it says he saw the cloth. It says he saw and he believed. But what did he believe? He believed that the body was gone. Doesn't say anything further there. In fact, it says that they, did, they still did not understand the scripture about Jesus that he had risen from the dead. Okay. So even though it says he believed, it's still important to understand what he believed. That It says that they really didn't understand that Jesus had risen from the dead. So he's basically saying, okay, he's not here. Okay, so later on uh, in, uh, let's go down to... Uh, verse 36, I guess, well, we got the, we got the road to Emmaus, excuse me, uh, on verse 25. Uh, Jesus has been walking with them and talking with them. Verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then Jesus goes and he begins to explain things to them. And when they take bread with him, their eyes are open and they recognize him. Okay, this didn't come by their analysis. It came by they ate bread and their eyes were open. There was a revelation there that they came to understand that this was, uh, that this was in fact Jesus. So that's those two men. They, in fact, didn't believe because the women had told them or the apostles had told them. They came to believe because they had that interaction directly with Jesus. Then in, in verse 37, uh, let's start in 36, it says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus stood among them. This is the, the disciples were together. And in fact, you know the reason they were locked in that room? They were afraid of the Jews. They're, they're protecting themselves. It says, Jesus says, peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Well, hadn't the women told them? And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do, you, you, do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, uh, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? Talk about switching the subject. Okay. Because of their own joy and amazement, they still didn't believe. So as we think about, as Jude says, to have mercy on those who doubt, the reason that we should have mercy on those who doubt is because mercy has been shown to us. Mercy was shown to those women who went to the, to the tomb expecting a dead body. 
Mercy was shown to the two men on the road to Emmaus when Jesus revealed himself. And ultimately, mercy was shown to the apostles as they were together where Jesus himself came to them and said, look at my hands and my feet. The very thing that Thomas then demands for himself. So they didn't figure it out. We don't figure it out. Why should we expect anybody else? When somebody is lost in sin and we want them to see, want to see their lives change, the reality is they have to have an experience with Jesus Christ. They cannot bring that about by the force of their own will. And we should not expect that. Just You know, if you'd stop smoking or if you'd stop going out drinking, your life would be different. Well, it isn't going to be different. It's only going to be different if you come face to face with the living God. And that's how it changes. So all of these in this story, all those people leading up to John meeting with Jesus, or excuse me, Thomas meeting with Jesus, they were all shown mercy. And they should show mercy to those who doubt, and so should we. Okay. Let's head back to uh, John chapter 20. Okay, so thinking about that, thinking what the disciples had already been through, let's think about this a little bit again. A week later, starting in verse 26, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed, and blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Now, I think it's important to see that Jesus came into the room already knowing Thomas's issue. Thomas doesn't confront him and say, you know, please can you pull back your bath towel or, you know, whatever that thing was that looked like he was wearing there? Jesus comes in and directs Thomas to himself. He also doesn't say, don't doubt. He actually says, stop doubting. Okay? And that's because for all of us, I think there are places of doubt. They're part of our experience of coming to believe. It's a little bit like if you have a child and they fall down and they start crying. Even if they're a teenager and they fall down and they start crying, they start crying those really loud cries. And finally, you know, you put your arms around them and say, okay, that's enough, stop crying. There is a point where the doubting does have to stop, the believing has to begin, and Jesus brings that uh, to them as he said, okay, Thomas, stop doubting and believe speaking directly to him. And the interesting thing here is, is he then goes on and says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who is he speaking about? He's speaking about us. Okay, all of those people who would come in the future, 
who would not see Jesus face to face, and yet who would come to believe. Thomas had come to that point of saying, my Lord and my God, and Jesus you know, makes him look to the future, to all those who would come to believe without seeing Jesus. Now, Thomas has a little bit of a history. He then, uh, after this time, uh, Thomas does become a true believer. His life is changed. There is no going back for Thomas. And Thomas becomes uh, basically a missionary. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I talked about how I feel like going out into the mission field to this place where there's no looking back, there's no way back in many cases. That takes a special act of faith. And Thomas actually uh, is known, uh, excuse me, I should have pushed this one up last, but Thomas is known for having been the apostle that probably went the furthest outside of the Roman Empire. You know, the Roman Empire, for all of its negatives, was actually a place where there was greater safety than other places. But he went uh, east. He went through uh, Parthion, uh, which is basically Iraq, mostly Iraq, and through Iran, and ended up in India. And there's still churches today, uh, mostly Catholic churches, celebrating uh, Thomas's entry and coming to India. Uh, he is believed to have been martyred on, uh, in a town called uh, Chennai, uh, which is on the east coast of India, India, and interesting enough is one of the places that was struck by the tsunami just a few uh, years ago, not the one that hit Japan, but the one earlier. Uh, and a lot of missions, uh, people have gone to that city uh, to minister, but there are still churches uh, there dedicated to Thomas's having come uh, into India all those years ago. So Thomas himself became, uh, became a missionary and carried that word forward to those who would not see Jesus. So ultimately, you know, Jesus understood Thomas uh, where he was. This describes who, who Thomas was, how he went to the uh, furthest parts of uh, the world, from uh, at least as compared to any of those other apostles. So he had become really a true believer. So as we think on doubting Thomas, ultimately his remembrance should be of being a true believer. And I just, this just, so think on those terms. Not doubting Thomas. If he helps you learn about dealing with your questions and your doubts, that's great. But ultimately his example is by his interaction with Jesus, he became a true believer. Now, as we close here today, and if the musicians want to come up for, we're going to do a last song. Uh, something I want, I want everybody to think about is the fact that, as I said earlier, when the artists in the Renaissance period and maybe some other periods painted, they often painted themselves into the picture. Uh, and what I would like for you to, to think about as we finish today uh, and ask yourself, do you see yourself in this picture? Do you ever have doubts and questions that you really struggle with? Uh, and I can tell you, Jesus is bigger than all of them. He, he is able to handle any question that you can ask. We may have trouble understanding what the answer is, but I can guarantee he is not afraid 
of you asking him a question. He knows right where you are. He knows what your doubts are, your fears are, and he's able to speak to them uh, and to help you uh, exactly where you are. Are you able to go up to God and ask them those questions? I think that becomes the key answer. Now, maybe you're somebody that's on the other side. Do you ever think that people who have doubts are less spiritual? Do you get uncomfortable when they ask questions? Well, I think the Lord wants to minister to those also as we close, that please consider that. God is bigger. He is able. We often sing that song as, my God is stronger. My God. And we think in terms of big pictures and lightning and flashes, God's bigger than our doubts and our fears. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.